Bonjour and welcome to the Good Life France podcast, where we share everything about France with you. I'm Janine Marsh. I'm a Brit born in London, but now living in the glorious countryside of the Pas de Calais in northern France. I'm an author and I'm the editor and publisher of the Good Life France magazine and website. And I spend my time either traveling around France or looking after my 60 animals or doing DIY on my old and once rather decrepit farmer house. So after 19 years of renovation, it's looking good and nearly finished. Well, I say nearly finished, I'm not sure it's ever going to happen really, because once one job finishes, another seems to pop up. In the meantime, I love chatting to you from my little office in a former pigsty in my garden with my podcast partner, Olivier Geoffrey. Bonjour, I'm Oli. Have you guessed that I'm French yet? You're right, I am, but uh, I live in the UK, near Windsor. Some say that you lose your Frenchness when you live abroad. That is not true at all. First, I think I'll keep my strong French accent forever. Same for my taste for good food and wine. Same for all those things my country has to offer. That will never change, I can tell you. And cerise sur le gâteau, icing on the cake. I get to be an ambassador of France in this podcast, and I'm loving it. So, let's start, Janine. What will we be sharing with everyone today? Well, Ambassador Ollie, I read recently that at the Palace of Versailles, the Queen's Boudoir, has had a bit of a renovation, probably a bit quicker than my house. And I thought it would be really good to talk about Versailles, the palace, the people, the town, history and legends. It's truly a fascinating subject. That's such a great idea, Janine. Versailles is definitely worth doing a whole episode on it, or even more. Versailles is not like uh, anything you've seen before, really. Versailles is uh, in its very own dimension. Versailles is all the adjectives you can find put all together, and none of them at the same time. Versailles is unique. I think you understood that one. It's <laughs> Versailles. I remember my first visit there with my parents as a kid, I've never been super tall, but at Versailles, I felt very small indeed. It's gigantic. The Hall of Mirrors, in particular, we'll talk about it a little bit later on. La Galerie des Glaces. I have a vivid memory of it. Imagine you're 10 years old, standing in this insane room with huge mirrors on one side and out of this world windows on the other. You go, wow, that is a cool room. I want one. And then your mom takes your hand and pulls you out of your dream to continue the visit. So yes, there is a lot to say. Let's begin. The Good Life France podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. So if you were able to step into a time machine and go back 323 years and step out of that machine in the year 1600 in Versailles, you wouldn't see a palace at all. In fact, you wouldn't see much of anything. Because where the palace now is, was a humble windmill. And where the vibrant and elegant city that Versailles now is, was a rural hamlet of around just about 200 people. But it didn't take very long for everything to change, just a few years. Yes, indeed. In 1610, Louis XIII decided to build a hunting lodge in Versailles. He was crazy for hunting. And as it was only about 12 miles from Paris as the crow flies, and had huge forests full of stags. It was just perfect for him. He, Louis XIII, was succeeded by Louis XIV, who was also known as the Sun King, as the sun was his personal emblem. And I have to tell you, it was not for his sunny nature. He was christened Louis Dieudonné, meaning gift of God, by his very relieved parents who had waited many years to have their first child. So you can imagine, he was extremely spoiled. 
he was brought up to believe that he was king by divine right and like all kings he had to choose an emblem so he chose the sun now to him the sun meant apollo god of peace god of the arts the heavenly body giving life to all things in those days the sun was seen as the embodiment of regularity rising and setting each day and louis saw himself as a sort of warrior hero bringing peace to his people protecting the arts and he held these what he called uh, levee and coucher in public which was a formal ritual of him rising in the morning and retiring in the evening accompanied by ceremonies so he was according to him at least the earthly sun god and he insisted on the resemblance carved in stone not just at versailles but on public buildings everywhere and in fact you know, if you go to loads of places in France, you'll quite often see a golden sun with a face on buildings. There's a really good one in the Grand Place in Lille, near where I live. So if you wanted to schmooze Louis XIV in those days, you stuck a sun sculpture up on the wall. And yes, Louis did think that just as the earth revolves around the sun, France revolved around him. He wasn't exactly a modest man. He became king of France at the ripe old age of four in 1643. Four. When I was four, I couldn't even get my nan's cat to sit still, let alone rule a country. Anyway, Louis didn't hold the power then. His godfather, mentor and chief minister, Cardinal Mazarin, did till he got a bit older. When Louis did get older and when he did get power, let's just say he took it very seriously. Indeed, he did. He holds the record for the longest reigning monarch in Europe and ruled France for 72 years. Those years were seen as a time of prosperity, a golden age for France on the whole. Though towards the end of his reign, several wars brought debt and famine to France. Louis XIV is not usually remembered for the bad times, though, but for the flourishing of arts and sciences and magnificent architecture under his rule, including, of course, Versailles, and a bit more about that in a minute. By the time King Louis XIV died age um, 77 of gangrene, just four days before his birthday, he had changed France forever. Actually, Queen Elizabeth II came close to matching his reign. She celebrated 70 years in 2022. Indeed. Here's a fun fact. Louisiana, USA, is named in honour of Louis XIV. Frenchman René Robert Cavalier de La Salle, big name from Rouen in Normandy, claimed the interior of North America for France in 1682, and he named it Louisiana for his king. The state was purchased from France by the United States in 1803 when Napoleon agreed to an offer of $11,250,000. lot of money then. And for the US to assume claims of American citizens against France in the amount of $3,750,000. Gosh, in those days, I mean, that was astronomical. <laughs> wow. Uh, and a bit more about Louis. After all, without him, uh, there will be uh, no Versailles. He owned 1,000 wigs. <laughs> Louis XIV <laughs> was quite short at uh, 5 feet 4 inches. So the big wigs he wore, along with high-heeled shoes, made him appear much taller. Clever. Well, didn't know he had 1,000 wigs. That's a lot. Must have had big cupboards for them. Anyway, he liked to eat and drink too, a lot. I think he liked to do everything a lot. His sister-in-law, Princess Elizabeth Charlotte, said he could eat four plates of soup. This is in one sitting four plates of soup, a whole pheasant, a whole partridge, a large plate of salad, two slices of ham. And we're not talking like little supermarket ham slices. We're talking massive, big 
chunks of ham, mutton, you know, old sheep cooked in a juice with garlic, a plate of pastry, cakes, followed by fruit and hard-boiled eggs. Very impressive. At Versailles, etiquette was everything. It was so important. And the king would eat this evening meal around 10 o'clock at night. It was known as the Grand Couvert. And it was a very formal court ceremony and open to the public who could come and gawk the king and his courtiers while a small orchestra played music. And then several courses of between two and eight dishes would be served. Between two and eight dishes. That's nothing, yep. Janine. That's really <laughs> nothing. Uh, when it was a, a formal dinner, it was even more grand. The first course, les hors d'oeuvre, might be royal ballotine of pheasant or fresh uh, oysters delivered from Saint-Malo that day or lobster from Normandy served in aspic and a glass of wine, obviously. Each course will stay on the table until the end of the meal, served first to the king and then to his court in order of rank. The second course could be a pureed chestnut soup with truffles or pumpkin soup, fresh from uh, the royal vegetable garden just down the road from the palace, or beef madrilene with gold uh, leaf spangles and another glass of wine. And maybe you'd think they might be getting a bit full up by now, but uh, mm -hmm, here comes the third course, accompanied by another glass of wine, more vegetables and herbs grown in the gardens of Versailles, with perhaps a rice salad with langoustines and truffles, or herb salad sprinkled with blue brooch flowers, violets and gold leaf. Surely that's enough. More, you say? And another glass of wine. And if you insist... The next course, hare stew or wild duck kromeski à la Villeroy, breaded foie gras with rice, or scallops with oyster liquor as well. Some of the meat will have been caught by the king himself and his courtiers. Hunting uh, was a daily pastime, and the beautiful plumage of the birds caught will be used to decorate the dish. Still, they must be getting a bit full up now. Well, perhaps a little more washed down, of course, with more wine. Course 5 could be something like wild salmon uh, au sel served on a block of salt, very expensive in those days, or roast beef, carrots and smoked eel. Another glass of wine down the hatch. Now time for the sweet stuff and there might be up to 24 different kinds of cakes followed by 24 different kinds of fruit, fresh, preserved, candied. Then perhaps something chocolatey, as cocoa was all the rage then, plus little dishes of jam, which Louis XIV loved. It was not unusual to have up to 170 different dishes in one of his elaborate feasts. And uh, if it was a special occasion, even more. Ouch. Wow. 170 dishes. Way too much food. I don't even know 170 different dishes, I don't think. Anyway, back to Louis. And his obsession with Versailles, because really that is what it is. So here he is, this king, who's a bit of a control freak, and he wants the best. He wants the most beautiful home in the world so that everyone knows it. So he turned what was a humble hunting lodge, first into a sort of bachelor pad where he took his mistresses, and then into a palace that no one would ever forget visiting. He couldn't really expand on his homes in Paris. There just wasn't enough room. And he really wanted to expand. And then some. So that's why he chose Versailles. Now, I've looked at a lot of books and I've read a lot of books about Versailles. And it seems to me that the historians are the most correct predict that at its peak, 
Versailles had 2,300 rooms. 2,300. I can't confirm that because I've not counted them all for myself. And in fact, some of them have now disappeared because there was a layer on top of Versailles that was removed. At its peak, between 3,000 and 10,000 people were living there. Some say it was actually a lot more, but they didn't count servants, obviously. You know, people like me don't count, only the rich. So essentially, it was a city within a palace and its ground. Now, the nobles, whom Louis pretty much insisted live there, where you keep an eye on them and keep control over them, they did kind of lead a life of luxury, but in some ways they didn't. So for one thing, for most of them, there were no bathrooms. Let's just say that they did their business in the corridors or the gardens mm. or behind the curtains. Yeah, nice. behind the curtains. So there they are in these gorgeous silk gowns with the, you know sparkly jewels and all their money, but no bathroom. At one point, it got so bad that a decree had to be passed that the business be collected from the corridors once a week. Now, the king and the top royals did have a sort of pot in a chair type thing, which servants had the jolly job of emptying into the 34 cesspits dug under the castle. And also, these people, you know, they're used to living in their own chateaus, but Louis said, nope, got to come and live at Versailles. And they often had really tiny bedrooms, and they very rarely had a kitchen or cooking facilities. And there was a like a minister of complaints at Versailles, and he used to log all the letters he got, and they were always complaining about not having anywhere to cook their dinner. So they had to send their servants out to buy food. And in fact, a whole town grew up around the palace, so that supplies could be more easily got, you know, for the royals that lived there. And there were even street food stalls inside some of the rooms of the palace and the ground. It's just incredible, isn't it? So here we are, Versailles, 200 people in a hamlet, and it's suddenly, it's propelled into this huge city. Yeah, and fun fact, if you were a member of the royal family, you had a chamber pot made of silver. That's much better, isn't it? No, I don't care if it's made of solid gold or platinum. No. Everyone else had normal pots uh, and they just kept them in the corner of their rooms. Nice. The smell, imagine. <laughs> the palace, gorgeous as it was, could be a bit smelly indeed. It wasn't until Louis XV inherited Versailles that uh, what they called toilettes, toilettes à l'anglaise, uh, were installed in uh, his private apartments. Everyone else had to carry on making do. And uh, when it came to meals, even the royals didn't have it that great. The kitchens were so far away from the dining room, Versailles being huge, that by the time the food reached the table, it was usually stone cold. And when it was really, really hot, the castle would get really, really hot too. And apparently, Louis XIV used to have wet sheets hung up at his windows in his bedroom to try and cool it down. So, yes, it's a beautiful castle, but not always the most comfy. And let's talk about probably the most famous room in the castle, that Hall of Mirrors that you mentioned earlier, Ollie. Oh, yes, it's incredible to see. Originally, the gallery was open to the gardens, a terraced area, but then it was closed because bad weather often made it uh, unusable and the 357 mirrors were hung. 357. Everything is crazy in this castle. Or <laughs> yeah. Palace, I should say. <laughs> Uh, they were hugely expensive. Mirror making in those days was a real art. And uh, the city of Venice held the monopoly and the secrets to uh, making these mirrors. They belonged to uh, a guild that ruled they must uh, not take the uh, know-how out of Venice. And when they were lured to France to make mirrors from the king, it said that the Venetian government ordered the assignation of the mirror makers. 
In those days, the mirrors that were produced in Venice were small. We wanted hundreds of them to create walls of mirrors. It's believed two of the mirror makers were killed. But by then, the secret was out. France knew how to create Venetian-style mirrors. God, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? Assassinated because you shared the secret of making the mirrors. I have to say, I mean, I've been there and, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's astonishing. But I like to imagine what fun all those aristocrats and the kings might have had if they'd made a sort of some uh, like a funfair style wall of mirrors. You know, but those ones where you look in the mirror and it, it distorts your image and pulls your face out. Although I very much doubt that Louis XIV would have been very impressed by that. He was, though, very impressed with his own gardens. There were the gardens of Versailles that surround the palace, but a short walk away are another not very well-known set of gardens called the King's Potager, the King's Vegetable Garden. These were built on a swamp and they were dug out by the King's Swiss Guard. So to this day, there is a small lake there known as the Lake of the Swiss Guard. The King's gardener was a man called La Cantigny. He was a genius at gardening. He was so innovative. He just came up with different ideas. So he built an underground aqueduct and underground wood burners. And then he dug these huge square pits deep into the soil so that they could trap the sun, keep the heat in. And that meant he could grow almost anything despite Paris and Versailles being in the north. It was said he could provide up to 4,000 figs and 150 melons a day. Lettuces were grown in January. Strawberries were ripe in March. Coffee beans, bananas, pineapples. He could grow all sorts. By 1685, glass-making techniques meant greenhouse conditions could be created. So first they had the mirrors in the Hall of Mirrors from Venice, and then they learnt the glass-making techniques. So the underground heating they installed kept the roots going all through the winter. And in its day, it was an absolute marvel, almost miraculous. And Louis would show off to foreign visitors because it became one of the most famous gardens of its time. So alongside the palace, he's got the gorgeous gardens, which are the vegetable gardens. And if you go to Versailles, I definitely recommend a detour to the vegetable gardens. It's not quite as incredible as the king was alive. I didn't see any coffee bean plants or bananas, put it that way. But it is really very incredible without that. And you get a most fabulous view of the palace from there as well. You're absolutely right, Janine. The formal gardens of Versailles are among the most spectacular gardens in the world. They took 40 years, 4-0, to complete. Some of the trees were planted by Marie-Antoinette herself. There are 372 statues, including uh, several of Apollo, the Greek god of sun, as uh, Louis was, of course, uh, le roi soleil, the sun king. There are 55 water features, 600 fountains, and more than 20 miles of water pipes. There are hundreds of thousands of plants and flowers, obviously, in uh, King Louis uh, the XIV's day. There were so many blooms that uh, they literally made visitors feel sick. In the grounds are two more palaces, the Grand Trianon and what is known as the Petit Trianon, the Queen's Hamlet, though really it was a small palace within the grounds of the big one where Marie-Antoinette used to make believe she was a simple country girl with a normal life. Yeah, right. Albeit still surrounded by servants and with its own theater, which could see 200 people and uh, is incredibly opulent. Yes, living a normal life with a theater yeah. in the garden. <laughs> see 200 people. I can see about 10 on my terrace. <laughs> I'm like Marie Antoinette. But yeah, you're right. I mean, these gardens are stunning. I was, what really surprised me when I went there as well was that they planted the flowers 
the same way now as they did then. So they didn't dig them straight into the soil, but they grow them in pots and then they sink the pots into the soil so that you can remove them when they're wilting and they can be easily replaced because, you know, like you said, Louis the Fourteenth, he had so many flowers. It literally, people used to say it made me faint or it made me sick. But as soon as a plant needed replacing, if it looked not quite perfect, they'd just whisk this pot out, put another one in. And these gardens were never closed to the public. And in fact, nor was the castle. It was it was a tradition that a king should be accessible to his subjects. So pretty much anyone could come in, but they had to be well-dressed. So they literally had fashion police standing at the gates like nightclub bouncers deciding if you were dressed right and could come in or not. <laughs> And Versailles has so many secrets too. There's uh, the secret passage or secret staircase in the palace grand apartments, which was uh, used by the king and his mistresses to escape unnoticed. It's hidden behind the door that looks like a bookcase. It's very narrow, so not many people can use it at one time, but you can visit as part of a guided tour. There's also the secret room, Secret du Roi, near the king's private apartments. It's also said that the Petit Trianon came with its very own secret passageway, which joined the Petit Trianon to the main palace, said to have been built by special request from Queen Marie Antoinette. Now we don't know where it is, or even if it still exists. It's uh, so secret, no one can find it. There's also a secret royal chapel you can get to through a hidden door in the king's bedroom. And there's a secret tunnel in the basement of the palace to the outside that was used to transport food and people between the palace and the town. It was wide enough for a horse and cart. It's incredible. They love their secrets, those royals. And they like to be away from the reality of life outside too. And that's what Versailles gave them. It really, though, disconnected them from reality, which, of course, in the end, played quite a big part in their undoing because they carried on partying in their bling-bling bubble at Versailles while ordinary people outside suffered from a cost of living crisis, famine, just you know, had a terrible time, really. Indeed, and you can find out more about that in our Bastille Day podcast. Absolutely. Ultimately, Versailles was one of the greatest achievements of architecture and gardening of the 17th century. It's been a museum since 1837, and it still has the power to take your breath away when you see that golden gate, which is a replica, by the way. The original was destroyed in the French Revolution. But if you want to see an original, go to the King's Vegetable Gardens that I told you about, because there is an original one there. The sheer immense size of the palace, the amount of gold and gilt, the tapestry and furnishings, I, you know, it's just as impressive now as it ever was in the Sun King's day. Got a question about France? Well, ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And we do it for free. Oh, Janine, that was such a great topic, Versailles. But now it's time for a listener question. So what have we been asked today? Today's question is from Taylor Smith in the USA. And she says, my French friend Thibault said it is illegal to marry a dead person in France. Is that true? Surely not. Well, it's a proper morbid question, that Taylor, but is Thibaut telling the truth? Ollie, true or false? In France, can you marry a dead person? Well, Taylor, uh, I have to tell you that uh, Thibaut is actually telling the truth. It is true. France is one of uh, a few countries where it is permitted to marry posthumously. 
There were a lot of rules, though. You can't just uh, rock up to the town hall where uh, marriages are conducted and say, I want to marry, um, I don't know, Napoleon Bonaparte or Marie Antoinette. No, you can't. But under Article 171 of the Civil Code, in some circumstances, you may marry someone who is deceased indeed. Yes, Taylor, Ollie is absolutely right. And it's not something that happens very often. In World War One, for instance, it was actually quite common for women to marry the fathers of their children who had sadly died. And there are a lot of rules. For instance, the deceased must show consent, for example, having bought wedding rings before the, you know, he died or she died. And there has to be a really good reason. And quite often that involves children. So bit of a strange question, but there's your answer. Yeah, and thank you uh, so much for this question, Taylor. I was dying to answer it. <laughs> if you also have a question for us, <laughs> it was an easy one, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Feel free to send it to Janine at thegoodlifefriends.com, Janine at thegoodlifefriends.com, or via our podcast newsletter, as usual. This is The Good Life France podcast. Oh là là! Le podcast The Good Life France. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're really grateful to you for sharing it with your friends and family. We're taking a little summer break now and we'll be back in a few weeks' time. Uh, nothing major. I'm off to uh, Nantes, south of France, and a bit of uh, traveling around to spend time with my family. And I'm off to lovely Alsace in the northeast of France. You've been listening to Janine March and myself, Olivier Geoffrey. You can find me at parischanson.fr. And you can find me at thegoodlifefrance.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, my weekly newsletter about France and my fabulous free magazine, which is at magazine.thegoodlifefrance.com. But for now, it's au revoir from me. And it's goodbye from me. Speak to you soon. The Good Life France podcast. Available on all podcast platforms. On thegoodlifefrance.com and on parischanson.fr The most beautiful French songs of the 40s, 50s and 60s only on Paris Chanson Available on your mobile, smart TV, computer and smart speaker 24-7 Visit parischanson.fr to find out more That's P-A-R-I-S C-H-A-N-S-O-N dot F-R. Ah!